Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This was also a time when girls were spending more time being schooled. The theory became that if they were in school during puberty, that their developing bodies were competing with their brains and their brains were winning. And therefore, when they became adults, they couldn't properly lactate anymore because they were being overeducated. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast series all about the history of inventions, brought to you from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. Now, baby formula, as in the powdered milk substitute, has been headline news in the US for months now because of a massive national shortage. There have been stories of some mothers having to drive thousands and thousands of miles in search of formula in supermarket shelves. And it's highlighted really how essential the stuff is for many people, but also how politically charged the idea of formula milk is. Humans obviously managed without baby formula for a very, very long time, and in many cultures obviously still do. But the rise of baby formula is a really, really interesting story that is linked to urbanisation and has been wrapped up in all kinds of feminist thinking about women's bodies. Jacqueline Wolfe is a historian of medicine, and she's going to be my guest today. She studied the history of baby formula and its rise to dominance today. Hey, Jackie, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Great. And listen, you're a podcaster as well, aren't you? So let's do the podcast plugs now. Thank you. I do a podcast for a local national public radio station in the United States. The name of the podcast is Lifespan Stories of Illness, Accident and Recovery. That is absolutely fascinating. I can't imagine the sheer breadth of stories that you must cover with such a headline. Everything from burns to falling off cliffs to making very serious... (laughs) decisions about uh, reproduction and mysterious illnesses that doctors couldn't diagnose. It talks about everything. And I'm going to assume there's some happy stories in there as well. I mean, it sounds pretty crazy. There are wonderful stories about childbirth and breastfeeding and, yes, positive stories. But, you know, when you're dealing with any healthcare system, the stories are often deeply personal and um, very moving. Make sure you check out Jackie's podcast. Whereabouts are you in the U.S., by the way? Where's home for you? Ohio. Athens, Ohio, which is in the southeast corner of Ohio, for anyone who knows Ohio, almost in West Virginia. I suppose it's a good time to be talking about baby formula. I'm not sure if it's a good time because I'm just reading an article now about how there's this big shortage of baby formula. And there's all kinds of reasons why there's a shortage in the US. And it's partly due to 
logistics problems. Well, really, I mean, it originated because the formula companies in the U.S., it's really a monopoly. There are very few formula companies. And the main supplier of formula in the U.S. had one of their um, plants closed down due to lack of sanitation. So it's been closed for months and months. And that's what initiated the shortage. So yes, formula has been headline news in the U.S. now for weeks and weeks. There's so much going on in the U.S. news-wise, which we won't go into now, but I didn't sort of realise that one. And actually, just reading the article, it makes the point quite interestingly about just how political baby formula is as a thing, because it touches on race, it touches on class, it touches on poverty. And of course, you have this problem. So all these bubbling undercurrents of American politics and, you know, UK politics as well, we suddenly see bubbling to the surface. It's it's very interesting. And I guess we'll touch on perhaps some of those politics a little bit later on. But let's just start with a sort of basics for our listeners. Why do people need baby formula? Where do we start from that? What are the reasons? I mean, there's obviously things that we can imagine, but from your point of view as the expert, why would we need baby formula to begin with? A lot of people think that this story started after World War II. It didn't. It started in the last quarter of the 19th century, Okay. in the 1870s, as countries were industrializing and urbanizing. This was an era, if a baby wasn't breastfed, the baby died. Yes. There was no palatable alternative to breast milk. Uh, There was no dairy industry that had any kind of regulation. It would take days for cow's milk to get from rural areas to urban areas. By the time it got there, it was spoiled and adulterated. So literally, breastfeeding was a matter of life and death. So for women back then, what were the reasons why they couldn't breastfeed? That's exactly where the story begins. It wasn't until the last quarter of the 19th century that women in the U.S., although my understanding is that this was pretty universal in industrial countries. Women began slowly reporting that they didn't have enough milk to feed their children. Now, I'm a historian of medicine, and one of my areas of research was on breastfeeding and alternatives Mm -hmm. and the history of women turning away from breastfeeding and turning to animal milk. And I was very curious about why and when that happened. And I was able to pinpoint that period of time, the last 25 years of the 19th century, when doctors became involved because babies were dying, because women were reporting they didn't have enough milk, and doctors began searching for alternatives. Now, my question became, what was going on that suddenly women couldn't breastfeed? What I discovered was the physicians thought that it was a medical problem. It was really a change in cultural habit. Mm -hmm. I began to look at infant care manuals and women's magazines. And what I discovered was that as the U.S. industrialized and people suddenly were using the mechanical clock rather than getting up with the sun, they had to move into factories. If they were farmers, they had to get their goods to the railroad stations at a specific time. This was a huge cultural shift. And adults were having a terrible time with it. And the theory was, if we could get babies on a schedule from infancy, they won't have the trouble with schedules that adults are having right now. So it became part of household life. Everyone had to learn to be on a schedule. And for breastfeeding, this is disastrous because the way any mammal's mammary gland works is that the more the baby sucks on its mother, the more milk will be produced. When you rigidly schedule, you're not going to get enough milk. 
It's why I love doing this podcast, because you kind of think you've got a rough idea about how, you know, what the story is. And then something like that completely changes everything. I had no, I didn't even conceive that a change in the way that we work would contribute it. Because I was thinking, okay, well, women die in childbirth. That's going to be a problem. Illness. But work itself and the regularity of work and the change in work culture. Even when women died in childbirth, usually a generous lactating neighbour or a relative would take the baby and feed the baby. So the real calamity came when so many women began reporting they didn't have enough milk. The interesting thing is doctors became involved and listened to the theories they came up with for why women weren't breastfeeding. One of the theories was that because the U.S. and other countries were urbanizing, the fear was that because people were living so-called unnatural lives, their bodies couldn't function naturally anymore, Mm -hmm. and that lactation was becoming a disappearing function in human evolution. That was one of the theories. Another theory, and this is really my favorite, this was also a time when girls were spending more time being schooled. The theory became that if they were in school during puberty, that their developing bodies were competing with their brains and their brains were winning. And therefore, when they became adults, they couldn't properly lactate anymore because they were being (laughs) overeducated. They're too clever. (laughs) When I say we get into politics here, this is what I mean. The overeducation of girls. And there were books (laughs) written about that called The Overeducation of Girls. That was another theory. And this is why doctors had to come up with a solution. And they even labeled the problem. It was called the feeding question. And one of the interesting things about this story is that pediatricians at the time were a really denigrated group of doctors because they were ridiculed as being baby doctors. That was a very derisive term. And uh, the thought was, if you can't treat adults, you can't be a very good doctor. So the so-called feeding question really legitimated pediatricians for the first time because they had a real serious problem to solve. Let's talk a little bit about this idea then, also a central question here, of, of the attempt to recreate human milk for babies and that story. Like, where did it start and how have we got to where we've got to now? Canned milk was invented during the Civil War in the United States in order to feed soldiers. Yes. Even in the last quarter of the 19th century, as as mothers began to complain they didn't have enough milk, we did have canned condensed milk Mm -hmm. to fall back on. The problem was we didn't have a reliable dairy industry. And I can't even begin to explain to you how poisonous cow's milk was. This is before germ theory. This is before pasteurization. You couldn't just like grab a cow's udder and pull it and get some milk and stick it into a baby and everything would be okay. Exactly, especially since the problem was really mainly in urban areas. How do you get cow's milk to urban areas when railroad cars weren't refrigerated? It was a spoiled, adulterated product that wasn't bottled. People were adulterating it all along the way. It could get very dirty in these railroad cars and people would throw in powdered white chalk into the milk to whiten it. It was a poison. Mm -hmm. So the question became then, what could doctors fall back on? So one of the things that happened for wealthy women, and this is the origin of the word formula in relation to baby food, 
one of the things pediatricians did is they would write out mathematical formulas as a prescription. Everything would be a variable. So for example, protein digestion week, which pediatricians now tell me is absolutely meaningless, but that was considered one of the variables in the mathematical formula. When you say mathematical formula, like a piece of maths, or do you mean like a chemical formula? like Literally a mathematical formula. And each of the variables in the formula, if anyone can remember their high school algebra, mm-hmm. each of the variables had a meaning. So it could be the baby's weight or height or pallor, or a big favorite was condition of their stools, the consistency of stools, the color of stools, all had different variables. And women would take these formulas written like a prescription on a piece of paper to urban milk laboratories where chemists would fill the formula. What the supposed formula would tell the chemists was how to tweak cow's milk. It would be altering just the basic substance, because there was no knowledge of the subtlety of milk. So like the basic protein, milk sugar, and fat, according to the formula. So it was designed for unique babies. Every baby had a different formula. And again, only very middle class or upper class urban women could afford to go to an urban milk laboratory, but they were very predominant in urban areas. So there was a class thing even then, because, you know, nowadays you th- we're a bit snobby about formula. And if you're affluent and middle class and white, of course you breastfeed, darling. And you wouldn't dream of giving your child formula. But back then, was it kind of like this new formula, magic, science, exciting? Was that seen as a high status? Not precisely. Just because if, if a mother couldn't breastfeed, it was still a tragedy. Right. This was life-threatening for a baby in this era still. Okay. However... You're right in the sense that it was flipped. It was mainly middle and upper class women who were complaining about this, whereas poor women were largely, in the U.S. certainly, immigrants or in rural areas, and they were still breastfeeding. Especially immigrants were still bringing original cultural habits with them, and they would continue to breastfeed. But even as they began to acculturate, and especially as they had to work outside the home, immigrant women also turned to alternatives. Again, the only people who could really afford safe cow's milk through these urban milk laboratories were wealthier women. I tell this story because this is the origins of the word formula. It's why we call formula formula. It's because of these mathematical formulas that existed really up until the early 1930s. Can you like find these formulas? Are they sort of? Can you sort of find them online and try and sort of recreate them? And actually, I don't know. Has anyone ever done that? Do you know the funny thing is? Yes, I found a lot of them in nineteenth-century pediatric textbooks, <laughs> and I've shown them to pediatricians who look at them and look at the translations of them and say this means absolutely nothing. Every one of them says that. <laughs> Is this somebody who was kind of who took this idea and ran with it? Do we have a name when we're looking at the inventor of baby formula we cite? The pediatrician who came up with these original mathematical formulas was a guy named Thomas Roach, R-O-T-C-H. He was a Harvard pediatrician, and he wrote about this everywhere, and other doctors adopted it. The main training for pediatricians right through the 1920s was learning how to write these formulas. And one pediatrician actually said, wrote a very funny article in the early 1930s, right before the these so-called formulas disappeared, and he said, pediatrics is like higher astronomy. <laughs> 
because these doctors had to learn such sophisticated mathematics to write these formulas. And finally, they just threw up their hands and gave up on it. Did they do it just to kind of look clever? It's like, oh, if we shove some maths at it and make it look kind of mathsy, it'll look really legit and sciencey and good and healthy. You know, this did legitimize pediatrics. Pediatricians mm. suddenly weren't mere baby doctors anymore. They were lifesavers. It really benefited doctors. It professionalized pediatrics, even though this source of legitimating pediatrics really turned out to be pure nonsense. Millions dead, a higher proportion of civilian casualties than in the Second World War. America, Britain, Russia and China all involved in a conflict that technically remains active to this day. So why is the Korean War of 1950-53 to called the Forgotten War? This July, we're dedicating a special series of episodes to finding out what this unique conflict was all about. Join me, James Rogers, throughout July on the Warfare podcast from History Hit as we remember the war the world forgot. 
or very few did. Mm -hmm. Again, like I said, milk wasn't a palatable substance either. So inherently, those proprietary infant foods were really quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the ads for them were pretty amusing because it wasn't like anyone ever said, try this, it's much better than breastfeeding. No, what they would say is, this substance, whatever it was called, lactated food was the name of one of them. Lactated food is essentially less likely to kill your baby than that other kind of food. So they were really in competition with each other, simply saying that this one is likely to make your baby less sick, which isn't a very convincing advertisement. Not really. Well, actually, can we talk about that? Because you, you, we talked right at the beginning, you mentioned these sort of corporations. When did it go, it suddenly become a sort of corporate thing? And perhaps you could tell us who the corporations are. See, that's why people think this story started after World War II. Yeah. Because you didn't have these big corporations monopolizing infant feeding until after World War II. Yeah. Abbott Laboratories. Abbott, we've got Nestle. These are the big ones. Carnation. Carnation but you know, milk, the funny yeah. thing is, I think some of these are owned by some of the bigger companies. Right, okay. And I don't have a map in my head of who owns what, but Abbott and Nestle are always the ones that come to mind. And in terms of the advertising, where does advertising sort of fit into the story? So if we're kind of post-war now... Was there a kind of like a, a war between these companies or what were they trying to promote? Were they, did anyone say that uh, this type of formula, formula in inverted commas, is better than breast milk? The formula companies were actually very clever. Sure, they probably always have advertised, but what they really did was begin speaking to physicians. And they had an entire team of, you know, now pharmaceutical companies will send people to doctor's offices to pitch their drugs. But in that era, formula companies sent in pitch people, detail men, they called them, into doctor's offices, very commonly obstetricians and pediatricians, to meet with them. And they did things which today are illegal in the U.S. They would offer fabulous gifts to doctors. I've interviewed now hundreds of doctors in doing my research, and they will tell you, uh, many of them who were trained in the 1930s and 40s, will tell you very nostalgically about the fabulous vacations, oh, cruises, yeah. where they would be flown to the cruise ship and be on a week-long vacation with their wives. They were all men with yeah. their wives. And the only obligation of the cruise was to watch a one-hour video from the formula company. And, you know, I talked to doctors who literally said to me, perhaps that swayed me. And they became total advocates. There became two generations of doctors who knew nothing about breastfeeding. And after World War II, it was all about science. We can do better than nature, was the thought. And the fact that formula was vitamin fortified, iron fortified, made it sound so much better than human milk. How close was it to human milk? Is there a comparison you can make at all? Is it better in some regards or is it just not even close? The physicians I know who advocate breastfeeding will tell you there really is no comparison, mainly because mammals' milk is very species-specific. There were experiments done in the 19th century showing this, feeding, for example, human milk to puppies. And these poor dogs were sickly their entire lives. Mm -hmm. And doctors did that deliberately as an experiment because they were trying to figure out, is feeding cow's milk to babies okay? And for the first time, they were seeing babies with constant runny noses and upset stomachs. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to them, this is like the puppies who are getting human milk. So the things we think of as normal 
baby illnesses really are not necessarily normal at all and are caused by the way we're feeding our babies. All mammals milk is incredibly complex, very species specific, enhances the immune system greatly. We know that. But presumably over time, you know, these companies have developed the baby food, the formula, so it's got better. I mean, I can't imagine that it's just stayed the same since the the Second World War. Presumably research and development goes into it and it gets better and better and better and more and more nutritious. Even today, formula, cow's milk-based formula, is simply cow's milk that is tweaked to roughly mimic the percentages of milk, sugar, and protein in human milk. That's what formula is. That's it. That's That's really interesting. That idea, though, of selling something like formula with that idea of it's science, it's better than nature, I can see how appealing that is. Am I right in thinking that the uptake of formula, women using formula sort of ebbs and flows. It gets very popular and then less popular. And I was a baby in the early 1970s. And I was brought up on formula. I I don't think I was breastfed. I think it was really popular then. In the US, I don't know the rates in the UK, breastfeeding reached its lowest point in the early 1970s. Only 22% of women in the United States initiated breastfeeding. All initiation means is breastfeeding once before you're discharged from the hospital. So virtually no women were breastfeeding in the U.S. in the early 1970s. It was the women's movement and also the environmental movement that brought breastfeeding back because those two movements kind of conjoined about, wait a minute, what is healthy for people? And what power do women's bodies have to feed their babies? And the women's health reform movement was very powerful in bringing natural childbirth to women's attention and the purpose of breasts back to women's attention. I grew up on the bottle. I was not a breast. (laughs) Probably explains all kinds of things. You mentioned Nestle. People tend to get very cross about Nestle for all kinds of things. I'd like you to expand on that a little bit for our listeners who don't know what I mean. Well, I can say specifically about Nestle. I mean, the origins of people being angry at Nestle is several decades old. As women returned in industrialized countries back to breastfeeding, formula companies began to lose money. They didn't have the customers that they used to. Nestle's began to advertise in less developed countries where it was really dangerous not to breastfeed. There was such terrible publicity from that uh, advertising strategy. And in the U.S., there was a Nestle's boycott. I remember that very well in the late 1970s and into the 1980s, where everyone refused to buy Nestle's products. Because of that publicity, you know, in some ways, the formula companies backed off from it. There's a movement in the U.S. to get the formula companies out of hospitals, Mm -hmm. because the same thing happens here, that mothers get discharge packs, and in the discharge pack is a lot of free formula. New mothers especially, mothers who have never given birth before, can be very nervous. And if your baby's crying in the middle of the night and doesn't want to latch, You see that formula sitting on the kitchen counter. You give your baby formula. Exactly. I've been there. (laughs) So, you know, I've had pediatricians who got involved in the the baby-friendly hospital initiative here in the U.S. to, as they put it, get the formula companies out of the hospitals Mm -hmm. so as not to tempt mothers and try to educate mothers better, the mothers who do choose to breastfeed, how to educate them better. I don't want people to get the idea that I'm anti-formula. So I want to say really clearly, given the history I told about how many babies died before we had formula that was sanitized, that was safe, thank 
goodness we have formula. Thank goodness we have it for the babies and mothers who need it. My beef is that formula should not be a growth industry. And what we should be doing is helping the mothers who want to breastfeed to fully breastfeed, not just supplement with formula. That's my beef, is that formula, a necessary industry, but it shouldn't be a growth industry. On that note, is there going to be a time or do you think there'll be a time where the companies that make formula will be able to synthesize a very, very close replica of human milk? The short answer is absolutely not. And let me explain why. Human milk, we are still discovering what human milk contains and what mammals' milk in general contains. And we're beginning to understand that human milk is as complex as blood. And we are highly unlikely to ever be able to have artificial blood that is completely synthetic. Mm. Everyone would acknowledge that's an impossibility. That's how complex mammals' milk is. So the answer to your question is would be a flat no. No. So there we go. Breast is best. However... For all its faults, for all its issues, for all its problems, formula, a necessary thing, substitute, a necessary invention that's obviously helped a lot of women and has obviously saved a lot of babies' lives. Thank goodness we have it knowing the history of how many babies died. And let me just tell you, in the industrialized U.S. in 1900, 13% of babies died before their first birthday and more than half died of diarrhea. Thank goodness we have formula. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully this shortage will stop. I read this terrible story about this one woman who had to drive 1,500 miles or something in order to find formula so she could feed her baby. Like Terrible stories. And it just goes to show how dependent we are and how important it is, really, um, for those who can't breastfeed. But actually, you know, when I mentioned the sort of politics reading the article about the shortages in the UK, it touches on the fact that, you know, not all women can breastfeed at work. You know, you're struggling for all kinds of reasons. We won't go into, you know, political reasons, cultural reasons. There is a lot of pressure on women, isn't there, in order to say, you've got to breastfeed, you know, and if you don't, then you're somehow substandard. Well, also, it's terrible because it's really true that, you know, class really does figure into this story because there are women. I mean, I'm a professor. I'm very privileged. I have my own office. I can close the door. I could have pumped milk. I could have brought my baby to work. But most women, uh, their own office, a closed door, even a break to pump, very, very unusual. And in the U.S., we have the further problem of not having any kind of maternity leave. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a very unusual employment. Employer who gives you time off after you give birth. And most of the women of babies under the age of one in the United States are working full time outside the home and have mm-hmm. no time off. They're usually yeah. back at work after six weeks. How do you breastfeed? And there is that expectation as well. You know, I mean, I remember, you know, when my kids were really little, that sort of, particularly amongst kind of the middle classes, that somehow if you couldn't breastfeed for whatever reasons, the sort of pressure, you feel like a substandard human. It's like, oh my God, I'm using formula and all my friends are judging me because... You know, I'm doing something that's unnatural and it's a, it's tough. It's a- I was the co-author in an article about women of reproductive age who had had breast cancer. And what do they do? I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why women don't breastfeed. Yes, exactly. And what we're seeing in the U.S. right now are women really fighting with each other. If you read some of the editorials about this formula shortage, there are women yelling, well, I couldn't breastfeed. And other women saying, well, everyone should be breastfeeding. And, this is you know, thing. it's misplaced yeah. anger. Women are yeah. angry at each other when they should be angry at a system that isn't supporting them to feed their babies in the way they want to feed them. 
And let me also add that, you know, doctors should educate themselves better about so that they can really help women who are struggling with breastfeeding. There's a lot we can do. Jackie, thank you so much for coming on and painting this picture. So it's been absolutely fascinating having you on. And I'm going to encourage all of my listeners to go and listen to your podcast, which they will find wherever they find their podcast, presumably. It's everywhere. Just hunt for Lifespan W-O-U-B, which is my local public radio station. Perfect. Jackie, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that is it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for your company. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more from our guest today, then I recommend Jackie's podcast, Lifespan, Stories of Illness, Accident and Recovery. And I'll put a link in the show notes for you. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please listen to all the others. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review and tweet about it and Instagram about it, however you like to tell people things, stop people in the street about it. It helps others discover the show. Next up, because it's the summertime, we're going to do an episode on the invention of air conditioning. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.